Hello and welcome to this, the 23rd episode of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, Angus Og McAnally, Artistic Director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and producer here at Rise. I'm a 15-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And each week we bring you this podcast absolutely free of charge. We've promised that we'll never, ever charge for these interviews. How much do I regret that decision now? Well, it's clear to see the guy who went to acting school and not business school. This thing takes about 10 or 12 hours a week to put together. But you know what? We're having a good time. You guys are having a good time by all accounts. People are listening. And it is doing a lot to help support Irish theatre. So I guess we're going to keep this thing ticking over. So, like I said, we bring it to you free every week. But we are looking for you to put your money back into Irish theatre. That's the whole ethos behind this podcast. To celebrate, promote and support all that is great about Irish theatre. So, how can you best support? Tickets. Simple as that. Go and buy yourself some tickets. Whatever your budget will allow, go out there and make your entertainment choice for this weekend or midweek or whatever. Make it some theatre tickets. Uh, Bring your friends. Go and have a great time. You won't be disappointed. Another way to support is by going and checking out one of the crowdsourcing websites like fundit.ie, who always have great theatre projects looking for funding over there. Donations start from as low as a fiver, and there are always great rewards over there. And in particular at the moment over there, looking at um, Devious Theatre Company's forthcoming production of Night of the Living Dead, which sounds like just such a smart and interesting project. That's definitely one that I'll be getting behind. I encourage you to go over there and check that out. Um, And of course, there are ways you can support without having to put your hand in your pocket. We understand that times are tight at the moment. But if you help spread the word about this podcast, it helps us spread the word about all the great work that's going on. So tell people about this podcast, whether that's in person over a cup of coffee, by sharing the link as a Facebook post, or by retweeting the link on Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast as well over on iTunes, which does a huge amount in helping bump us up the charts and helps us spread the word. Um, If you are out and about and uh, downloading is an issue, you can stream the podcast on fightnight.ie, our Fightnight website, and you can also access us on radiomade.ie. Do go back and listen to all the other episodes that we've put out and leave us a review over on iTunes if you can. Uh, That really helps us. Or, you know, you can simply just click to rate us. They have a five-star rating system. It's a one-click deal. You can follow us on Facebook Facebook, we are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland, or you can follow us on Twitter, we are at Rise Ireland. So that takes us to our announcements that we promised you from this week, and it's been a pretty eventful and tumultuous time here at Rise Towers over the last little while, but we can now finally bring you some news that we've been sitting on for quite some time, and that is that the long-awaited international tour of Fight Night is kicking off next month. We are going to the Mayfesto Festival uh, over at the Tron Theatre in Glasgow, which will be the first leg of the international touring this year of Fight Night, which I am over the moon about. Uh, you know, the idea that this little seed of an idea that started in my head, I don't know, maybe four years ago now, has grown and evolved and become the little sleeper hit that it was at the Fringe, originally through Show in a Bag and went on for that big Bewley summer run and then did the full national tour where we took in, I don't know, whatever, 25 dates in 18 venues, the thing I rabbit on about, I don't know how many it was, but it was a lot. You know, we covered all four provinces. We hit about 15, 18 counties, something like that. And, you know, the show has grown and grown and this is the next evolution of that. We, uh, we've been getting an awful lot of emails in even up until this week with uh, with offers of, of touring around Europe and further afield. So it's all very exciting. But we will be going to the Mayfesto Festival uh, at the Tron Theatre in Glasgow next month in the middle of May. So if you have any friends over in Glasgow, or if you're listening to us over in Scotland, do please come along to support. We are absolutely over the moon here at Rise. Uh, it's a lovely vote of confidence in us as a company and a lovely vote of confidence in the show. And the second announcement also carries on from that because the announcement is that I shall be leaving the show. Um, I won't be taking it to Glasgow. Um, Like I said, I've been working on the show for about four years and specifically since it's been Fight Night uh, and this Show in a Bag production from Rise Productions. Uh, it's been two full years since I first signed up to take on the show and go through that training camp and get myself ready for it and develop the show with Gavin uh, and to take it on the road. And two years of that level of intensity is a lot to do. And uh, I've had an absolute 
ball doing it. It's been a wonderful show for me. It has opened up a whole heap of doors for me that uh, really wouldn't have been there without the success of Fight Night. Uh, And so I'm eternally grateful to what the show has done for me. But, you know, the thing is, when I was looking to set up Rise Productions, um, it was never to be about vanity publishing. It was never about putting myself in shows. A lot of people set up theatre companies to put on a show. I put on a show to set up a theatre company. We always had broader uh, ambitions for us here at Rise. And uh, like I said, I didn't really want to be in the first show. Um, But, you know, I couldn't really ask anybody else to work for free. So I ended up doing it. And uh, obviously it's worked out very well for everybody involved. But I will be stepping away. We will be recasting the role of Dan Coyle Jr. We are are up to our eyes in sorting that out at the moment. Hopefully I'll be able to bring you confirmation on who that actor will be uh, very soon. But uh, I'm very, very excited about about what it's going to be. And just to see it played by someone else as well to bring a whole new take to it um, will be really interesting for me. I'm going to do uh, an awful lot of the restaging of it. We'll have, of course, Brian Burrows coming in to, to redirect as well. It's a, it's a very, very interesting time for us here at Rise. It's uh, it's kind of really the evolution of us and taking it on to the next step as we kind of branch out and take on bigger and better things. So that's the announcements out of the way. So it's kind of a, a fight night themed episode this week because of, you know, marking this momentous occasion. And as such, there was only one guest we could have. It is the phenomenal Brian Burroughs, who is a hero of mine, and I don't mind saying it because he has been for many, many years. Uh, I know Brian about 13 years at this stage. Um, We've had the great privilege and pleasure of working together uh, numerous times and in numerous capacities. Uh, He has been my you know, co-actor on stage. He has been my director. He has been a movement director on shows that I've done. Uh, And he's also been a teacher to me over the years. Um, He is... Certainly vying with Peter Daly for the title as nicest man in Irish theatre. He is a superstar. I love him to bits. Um, When Fight Night came about and I had to go and source a director for it, I had one choice in mind only, and it was Brian Burroughs. If he he hadn't been available to do it, I don't know that the show would have happened. I don't know that. And it certainly wouldn't have happened in in the guise that that it has. I mean, as you'll hear me say in the interview later on, the way I see how Fight Night was made was that it had three equal contributors in uh, in kind of the original seed idea from me and the development work I put into it, the phenomenal script that Gavin Costick put into it, and uh, and the whole physical world that Brian Burroughs created. Uh, the guy did a phenomenal job on the show. So much of the success of Fight Night is down to him, uh, and it's something I'm eternally grateful for. He is a wonderful guy, a guy I love with all my heart. Uh, and so here's a little insight into his world. It's a nice long chat as well. We get into quite a bit of detail about quite a lot of topics. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Here he is, my friend, the brilliant Brian Burrows. The wonderful Brian Burrows. We did it at last. I got you in a room. I'm absolutely delighted. Thank you so much for coming in. You're very welcome, Angus. It's a pleasure to be here. Right. We will go back to the beginning as we do every week. God. How does a young man from the wilds of Carlo, well, the wilds of Carlo Town, which doesn't really count, well, yeah. end up being uh, the multi-award winning actor, director, producer, whatever else, Brian Burroughs. Where did it all start for you? How did God. you even get into the business? Yeah, um, well, I suppose, as you say, being from Carlo, uh, how do I begin? We were dirt poor family, like, like skint to bits. We were like, I was growing up in kind of the early 80s. My father was a bricklayer. There was no work. My mother was a housekeeper at that point, making very, very little money. And uh, there was no sense of theatre or anything like that remotely in our lives at all. And I found that I'd go to my primary school and every two years they'd put on a little show and I'd be kind of part of that. And the same thing, I went to secondary school and they would have their school show. And I think what happened for me was... I was able to read at a very early age, right? Now, that sounds like a backhanded thing about Carlo. I was able to read, and this was an amazing thing, you know, which <laughs> I don't mean. It just meant I was really able to read. I kind of I got it. I was able to do it quite early. And as a result, then, I was given stuff to do in these little plays. It was like, well, Brian can read, give him that, and I'll belt it out and give it the lash. So I didn't see what I was doing any different to anyone else. And then I went into secondary school, and I got to do a few plays in a row between 1990 and 1991. And around the same time, my parents split up. So my mother was leaving my father. And I think something in that, what happened was, while that was happening, I was going off to act in these plays. We were doing things like Oliver, and I was playing Dodger. We were doing The King and I, and I was Louis. And then the major one for me was Pirates of Penzance, where I was the major general, which, you know, the funny thing is, for me, I started in these musicals, you know, and the idea that now it's serious drama as a whole of the world, you know, but uh, what happened was, Something was that my private life was kind of mental. It was really hard. And I remember feeling very alienated and very teenager and very disconnected from everything that was going on. And there was kind of a battle for my soul in my family, which was 
my father was kind of the darkness and the demons and stuff. My mother was the lightness and the hope. And I got a fantastic mother, and quite a, you know, a dark father, God rest him, who didn't have the facility to kind of contend with those demons. So for whatever reason, when I was on stage going to do these shows, I was able to process it through that work. And not so much that it was therapy, but it was therapeutic, that I could kind of stand and deliver and go, I know what it is I want to say and how I feel doing this. And so that was how that began. And somewhere around that time, I think it was 1992, and I finished doing Pirates of Penzance, and I had a fantastic time playing the Major General. I quietly went, I can't not have this in my life. I, whatever it is. And it was everything. It was the performing was primary. That was the major thing. But it was the sense of community, the collaboration, what it took to get it all together, to get it up. All the millions, millions of dramas off stage as well as on. I was fascinated by it. And I don't mind saying this. I thought plays were actually really boring when I was growing up. I was going, my family would want to come see them. And I'd say, oh, no, don't, God, it's boring. I love doing it. But, you know, you'd be bored to tears doing it. And something in there triggered something, I think, when I started being in a position to put on plays, that I went, what would make me excited? What would make me not be bored at this? And that that's kind of stays true for now, even, you know, going, what would be very exciting to happen now, you know? So somewhere in there, I made that decision and quietly kind of went about it then in Carlo and heard from my um, uh, guidance counsellor, uh, teacher in school about the course in Trinity and so applied for that and after my second attempt then got in so I was delighted so you had auditioned for what was the acting course up there the first time around yeah. and not got it yeah yeah it was the diploma course I was 17 and I went in and in my infinite wisdom did a Shakespeare speech from Merchant of Venice the Portia Mercy speech which is a girl's speech which I went in not knowing anything and Peter McAllister, our eventual acting teacher, and Andrea Ainsworth, the voice teacher, were in there. And very kindly, you know, dealt with me very gently, because I did this. And they were going, um, th th that's one of the girls' speeches. Well, wh why did you do that? And I was like, well, you know, she's a girl playing a guy. And I'm a guy playing a girl playing a guy. Like, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea. And in their infinite wisdom, they said, hmm, I think you're a little bit young. And they said to me, you've got potential, we'd like you to come back next year and apply again, which I heard as, you're crap, you're awful, don't come back, and, you know, and, and the usual yeah. thing. So I took a year out then at home, I finished my leaving cert, I hadn't applied to anywhere for anything, hadn't done CAO, nothing. Applied to Trinity only, nothing else, and was cut off into the wilderness of life going, I don't have anything. So I gave myself a year, I said, okay, go at this, do the local Andram stuff at home, go to the library in Carlo and read about it, get, on, get involved in this and see if you get in anywhere the following year. So the next year I applied to everywhere and luckily got in Trinity that time and, um, and here, we are. here we are. And so you were part of that first ever class of it being a three-year degree rather than yeah. the old two-year diploma. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, I guess it's at this point that I have to tell the not embarrassing oh, yeah. story because I, <laughs> I love it but that when you were in your final of the three years yeah. and effectively that the final year of that course in Trinity was that effectively you're working as a full-time theatre company but on three full-scale productions through that final year yeah. and I would get a half day from school because I was in sixth year in school and I would get a half day every Wednesday I would get on the dart from Port Barnock into town and I would walk through Trinity grounds to stand outside the Beckett Centre in the hopes that I would see you and the rest of your classmates yeah, yeah. either having a smoke break or running lines outside and I would bend down and pretend to have to tie my lace so I could have an extra 30 seconds in your presence because I had yeah. seen what you guys were doing well if that place can turn me into that kind of an actor then that's where oh, I yeah. want to go oh yeah I remember that I remember seeing you actually and I remember everyone just kind of falling silent and turning and going whatever it is he has it as he walked away <laughs> well look talk to me about your time in in the Beckett Centre oh, because wow. for a number of reasons one the professional relationships you built up with some of the staff there yes, yes. and also how it's shaped you career-wise and and how you've then subsequently gone down kind of that role as road as well oh yeah talk to me about that time there what was oh, it like? yeah, invaluable like it was a breathtakingly astonishing experience in and of itself for those three years if i never did anything else to do with theater or acting or anything ever again it was a phenomenal experience and i think that happens for a few people they go through that experience and go right this isn't for me but they had that experience and for me it became even more so this fantastic um, woman who used to direct the shows in Carlo, Breedine Quinn, she was the French teacher, asked me a few months into it, she said, is it still what you want to do? And I think she was very wisely going, maybe it's not what he thought it was. And it went the other way. I went, it's even more than I thought it was. And if you don't mind me putting it like this, I think there's a degree to which, as you're striving to become an actor, to, to find out if you can do it, if it's something you're good at and can make a living at, and, and, and not even make a living at so much as just get to do at a professional level, 
it's about you, you know, the focus is on you. Whereas when I was there, it became much more about the greater uh, effect, you know, the idea of the storytelling, the idea of ensemble, the idea of the, its effect on the world at large. So that was a fantastic thing they instilled. And I think because they were, it's interesting because the current Lear students are going through something similar, which is there was a bit of a light on the course at the time. And because it was three years and Peter McAllister, Andy Crook and Andrew Ainsworth were kind of the, the three who were in charge of, of that, they put so much effort into us. They got everyone into work with us. We, we had incredible hours and it was just like, you were just committed to it like crazy. So we didn't have, you know yourself, the typical college life that you see everyone else having. There was no time off, full time, giving it the lash, but I was in heaven. I, I lived for every moment of it. I loved it, it was brilliant. Do you stay in touch with many of that gang from that original class? Yeah. Oh yeah, we're still in touch. A lot of us are still, still keeping in touch. And you, you know, the, the joys of Facebook, you know? <laughs> and I mean, funny enough, I, I bumped into Connor Delaney. He was in my class. I bumped into him uh, and that alleyway between um, the Olympia and the project and he was in the Olympia doing stones in his pockets and I was doing uh, Johnny Patterson with Barabbas and we just bumped into each other and went buddy it's 10 years later and we're still here and I think even that's such a huge achievement just to have longevity just to be sticking around still you know um, but yeah we still keep in touch and a few of them are gone into other areas a few of them are still acting away in Scotland England all around the place um, and but here's the brilliant thing none of us have had remotely the same career path whatsoever, which is brilliant. You know, no one can point and go, oh yeah, it's by camera like that, it's completely different, you know? But a phenomenal experience. We, we learned everything you could, or at least got a good footing in all of it, so that when we left, you could then go on and develop into whatever area you felt, that's my cup of tea, you know? Well, talk to me then about the physical work you would have done there, specifically with Andy Crook, who you've gone on to work with quite a bit yeah. since, and also that, we're getting into the realm of you as kind of movement director and that, that kind of yeah, physical yeah. thing. It seems to be uh, a happy and a fertile and a fruitful place for you to be. It seems to be yeah. a, a, an effective way for you to work. Yeah, it's really interesting, Angus, because I think for all of us, we like to think that we're so virtuoso at everything that we can adapt to anything. And I think, you know, I still have to be disabused of that notion in relation to myself and that I feel I can do anything that, that I'm being asked to do. But for some reason in college... It was being highlighted by Andy, the movement teacher, just quietly he'd be saying things like, there's potential there, there's something there that's interesting. And, you know, I didn't see what I was doing as any different to anyone else, but quiet murmurings from class members and stuff saying, oh, you're kind of, that's kind of coming easy for you or that. And I didn't see yet, I hadn't yet connected how that would be connected to acting. Right. In, even though that's what they were teaching us, I was going, this is just making me very flexible and bendy and I can jump around and I can do things and I have a fantastic time in the classes and he's a phenomenal teacher, but I hadn't yet made the link that I go, now here's my Chekhov script and now I need to go and act, you know, and it's true I think of nearly every acting student and I think one of the joys of getting to teach kind of physical theatre now is making that link immediately, which I should say Andy was doing, they were all doing, but we just couldn't see it yet, you know, Yeah. and so... Um, what began to develop was a facility physically, an ease physically, a way of expressing oneself really honestly, really clearly through the body to almost the point of there was no need for text then, to whatever extent. Now, at the same time, I think vocally the same things can happen. I treat the voice as much as a physical part of the body, and it's the voice with the body, with your instinct, with your spirit, all those things together making the acting moment, I believe. you know. Um, so Andy pretty much took me under his wing then when I left college I had about a year out in the business and I was getting a couple of parts here and there and Andy propositioned me with the notion of how to feel about coming in to basically be his apprentice the reason being he felt he'd gone to a point as a teacher where he was just beginning to repeat himself and wanted a kind of uh, what's a transfusion of new energy to kind of go in and go could I come in and kind of observe him teaching as much as watching other students work together you know and um, what started off as just an idea that I just would take part in this class turned into me being there for a year with this wretched year in Trinity. <laughs> the worst to ever come true. How we... Oh, oh, hey. Yeah, no, this was actually... you, yeah, I know, yeah, yeah. Um, this was to my delight. I got to come in and work with Angus's year, that fantastic year. Um, like every year has its quality. Every year has its own dynamic and interesting and I just was delighted to be in working with you you know I mean that was a delightful time and I still have my notes from it really I still have my notes about stuff we did and stuff because I was absorbing everything I was soaking it all up because I had the benefit of having been a student and then to be observing it from the outside was so beneficial to be able to go I think that might be where they're at what they're going through and it's really clear to me from the outside what's going on and I think I owe Andy a huge debt of kind of developing and training my eye to be looking for those moments of truth, those moments of expressivity. And I still hold fast to this. It's, it's, a, it's, you know, it's a contentious thing, but that 
I far prefer a moment of truth, whatever it is, however it's expressed, over a moment of technical accomplishment, over virtuosity physically gets you bored quite quickly unless yeah. there's a, an emotional fuel behind it I think you know that's up for grabs by the way to be debated and worked <laughs> out in a workshop or rehearsal you know but uh, yeah I had a great experience with Andy and your class your class it was so such a great time to be with you as you were just getting to grips with your with your work and there was a year below you as well where there's lots of fantastic actors there too so it was a brilliant split of, of time you know wow so then talk to me then about that transition from that college set up in Trinity through to being out in the big bad world like you say you've been out for yeah. a year doing bits and pieces but it wasn't too long before the whole loose cannon thing happened for oh, you yes tell yes, us a bit yes, about that yes this is really interesting because this is I enjoy talking about that experience on an individual basis with people because it was so specific it was so intimate it was so transformative for me but I've never spoken about it like this, and I'm aware this is going out, you know. Yeah. So I want to be very, very respectful of it. I mean, it's a very sacred time. And just for anyone who doesn't know, Loose Cannon is a theatre company run by Jason Byrne, is, is the artistic director of it. But at that time, it was also very much D. Roycroft as well. It was very much like a driving force. So I, I came into Loose Cannon at that time when Jason was deeply exploring the work of Grotowski. And this, it was... It, like I still am in awe of this. I, I came up to him kind of quietly while working with your ear, bumped into him in Doyle's, and I heard, look, I heard you're doing amazing things physically and all that. And I said, would it be really bad for him to come in and have a look at what you're at? And he kind of went, yeah, would, yeah, but uh, why did you just join us? And I was delighted, going, what, what, seriously? So he was offering me a chance to come in. And um, uh, so I was aware that what I was absorbing learning with Andy was, was so invaluable. And then to be going in, basically Andy was like cock-based. And yeah. then to be bringing that in, and I, I went in and it was a whole new world, you know, because it was basically a group of hungry artists in completely unknown territory, as honestly as possible, delving in. Like this question, even back then I would always say this, I kind of go, how far is too far? Because I know those folk who have an aversion to training, the notion of that to examine too closely what it is we're at might make it go away or might make it too hard. But I'm a big believer in every class or every kind of experience like that is really a rehearsal. Go into it like it's a rehearsal and you have all that. So it was, it was, I was there for two years where we spent mornings intensely working on Grotowski kind of walks, plastiques, acrobatics, balances, extreme vocal work. It was, at that point, it was myself... Uh, D. Roycroft, Mark Dalton, Carl Quinn, Kevin Healy, Bonnie McCormack, and Jason there present. And I, I, I don't talk too much about the day-to-day -day stuff that happened because it was so personal, yeah. so intimate. And I think I had the advantage in one respect, which was um, Jason to me was always a director first and foremost. He became a friend and colleague and someone I respect and admire hugely still. I think he's a phenomenal artist who is constantly pushing himself, pushing the envelope, pushing these things. And he brought me to a place like he, he set out to challenge what I thought was acting, to set out to, to consciously kind of attack that and go for it. And I learned so much. I, I absorbed so much. And, and I, after about two years then, you know, for a number of reasons, I, I kind of hit my limit and it was time to go. You know, yeah. it was just time to go when it was time to go. And um, I still credit that as being such a learning curve for me, you know, because it was something about the mixture of Lecoq and Grotowski. Somewhere in the mix there, there's magic in terms of how to work with actors, how to kind of stimulate and get bodies moving, how to get expressive, all that kind of stuff, while not directly going for it, you know, so that the actors, I think, aren't aware how expressive they're being by doing very little or by doing a lot. I'm aware, I think, with Jason now, I would even say for, for Jason, to me, he has no style now, it's brilliant. In terms of, he's constantly evolving, and, and that was the time I was there when it was that intensive, you know. So I love, for example, I love working with Carl Quinn now as an actor. I've worked with him a lot, and I bump into him where we, we start a play, and I go, oh oh, that old fire is there, that magic is there, and we can get to a place quite quickly where we're really kind of uh, stimulating one another, you know? So, um, yeah, that was a phenomenal experience. And at the same time, I needed to walk away from everything after that. I had to take a break. I had to, about a year there where I had no impulse or desire to act or do anything. I went back home to Carlo. I was living with a mate of mine. I was kind of looking after my niece who just been, she'd just been born, and uh, she was diagnosed with diabetes, and I was home. Just kind of had a bit of a regular life for a while with a quiet notion that I'd come back up at some point, but in what form, you know? And I think that was the end of what I would call my apprenticeship period, where I was a student of someone, some fantastic mentors along the way. Anyone who would teach me anything, I would go for free and just absorb, absorb, absorb. And somewhere in that mix, I started going, okay, both feet on the ground, stand up and go, what do you think now? What do you feel? What do you think is important? And to stand by that, you know, for good or for bad. And that's kind of the path I've been on since, I think, you know. Was that time back in Carlo 
where you started making the shows back at your old school. This is a this is a fascinating chapter in your life to me because I've been down because I've been down to experience them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where you just have oh, balls of steel and tackle things that no one else in their right mind would ever tackle. Tell us a, a briefly. Tell okay, us a little bit. Okay, of what right. I think what he's talking about is no. This was this would have been happening a little bit before that, and then it it, it kind of jumped again when I went back down to Carlo, which was this fantastic secondary school down in Carlo, the Presentation College, where I was a student. They assume I know what I'm doing. So therefore, if I arrive in and say, we're doing The Princess Bride as a play, they go, okay, all right, grand. And I said, here's how we're going to do it. And what I would do is I would, it was actually a fantastic training ground for tackling things on a much more professional level because I treated all the students like professionals. It was a professional atmosphere. I mean, if you think about it, it was a massive theater company of hundreds who were willing to build sets and do things and and try things and act and sing. And, and do things. So I incorporated everything I've been learning from all my time at Trinity for, and just trying things. But I think what I did was I put that kind of stamp of madness on it, that stamp of magic and madness in terms of that thing I was talking about. What would I love to see now? Well, still holding to the integrity of the piece and serving that absolutely. Going, what would make my family who don't go to the theatre leap out of their seats or lean forward in their seats? And I'm not even talking about spectacle. I'm talking about even tiny moments like the micro scene, which we might talk about later on. But um, yeah, that was where they allowed me to do anything. So we did crazy stuff like like Princess Bride. We tackled Moulin Rouge. But these did. are full stage adaptations Full-on, of the movies. Yeah, I know. It's ridiculous. But what we did was we used that, those as a template and then went in and messed around with the script and created wives for characters and different things. And it was essentially a school play, but done on a ridiculously large scale for the crack so that we were going, this should be the best crack anyone's had in the school ever. You know, and I think part of it, I don't mind saying this, was when I'm working with young people, and I love working with young people from, you know, whatever age, this is like primary school all the way up, um, because it, it's the most terrifying thing in the world, and it keeps you sharp, and it keeps you really honest about what you think acting is, dramas, and all that stuff, is that um, they, what was the hell was I talking about? Why do I like working with young people? Oh yeah, they'll try anything. They'll do anything. They totally believe what you're at and they'll completely dive in. And so it's good training for when you come back up to the profession and you're dealing with people who may be more set in their ways about things and have to be delicately nudged, you know? Um, No, I love it. I really enjoyed all that. And it was just brilliant, a brilliant way in relative safety to try and, you know, express and figure out how theatre worked and and how to play with that, you know? And your first steps into being a director rather than just a performer as well, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It started there and then that kind of evolved into um, teaching individual students or groups of students and stuff like that. So I think I just began to figure out and all of it was to make me a better actor. All of it was to go, I want to understand my role in this. So I think I'm a better actor for directors now because I present them with things rather than going, tell me what to do, tell me. I go, I'm going to give you five, six, seven, eight options and see what you think and what you think. And it's terrifying, but well worth doing, you know. Tell me then about making the move back up to Dublin then and going, right, I'm going to go back into this series. Because it seems to me that relatively early on, Mm. you were already starting to win awards performance-wise. Oh, that was crazy time. Yeah, that was mental. It was so funny, buddy, because uh, one of the biggest... I had a... You know, I don't mind saying this. Like, I was pretty traumatised after the Loose Cannon experience. Not because of Loose Cannon, but because of my reasons for leaving and what that said about me after I left. In terms of a feeling of almost going... That was the ultimate acting experience, and I've come out of it now going, well, how do I act now? How, what, what's going to be sustaining and, and good enough and all that kind of stuff? And I think the big thing became about doing it on my own terms. That was a big thing going, I now want to do this on my own terms for me. And what happened was Andy Crook, very delicately, I was a little bit, um, I was a little bit kind of, how would you put it, delicate after that period where I kind of didn't really want to be doing anything. I didn't know how to even begin. And Andy just gently pushed Peter Hank, his, uh, my foot, my tutor, over a table to me one day over a cup of tea and said, just, just, just read that and come back to me. And it was just almost Beckett-y. And it was, it was a sequence of actions, a sequence of uh, directions about two characters on a farm, the mentor and the ward, and, uh, and I was playing the ward. And it was just a series of their interactions and what happened. And so uh, Andy was proposing this for the fringe. I quietly said I would do it. And I was, at that point... Um, it was just going to be this small thing we did. And it was small in terms of our audiences weren't that big. I we was had there. A fant- oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. We had a fantastic time. It was in, this is when The Fringe was three weeks. It was 2004. We did that. Um, we had t- uh, two weeks then when The Fringe was still on and we were going off to other things. I think I was tackling, <laughs> oh, brother, where art thou down in Carlo on the slide? <laughs> and uh, I think I was just about to start doing teaching movement in Trinity then that I'd gotten, a, I was teaching, you know, as a part-timer coming in and doing some movement classes. And um, so I was, would you believe this? I was home. 
I was late at night, it was late night one night, I was home, my niece was up, she'd had a kind of an attack from her diabetes, so I was up with her, and there's diabetes in my family, you know, so I was up with her, and uh, uh, we'd heard that Christopher Reeve had died, and I was gutted, because I was like, it's Superman, you know, and I was convinced I'd see Superman walk, and I was sitting here going, life's just, you know, it's just tough, you know, and uh, I got this phone call then from the Fringe going, where are you? I was like, sorry, like, where are you? Uh, you're just about to win best male performance, yourself and Andy, for this show, uh, where are you? We're like, oh, I'm in Carlo with my niece, I'm not there, Andy was in England, so we weren't there to do it at all, so it was really weird, because that night, uh, it, bec- it came a distant third in my experiences, I think I was like, my niece was primary concern, Christopher Reeve was on my mind and then that. And it was really funny because I was thinking, I didn't think I was going to act again after Loose Cannon. I, in terms of, I needed that break. And then I went back to do something very gentle with Andy, very easy, which isn't to say it, was a, it, it wasn't a taxing experience, more that we just had a very ease with each other. There wasn't a lot of chat and rehearsals. It was a very quiet experience. And to have that response, and I think part of it was, God, uh, the character demand for me was that he had a fixed mask throughout the entire piece, which was um, just my face in a grin. And I, oh my God, and uh, I, I'll never forget it in terms of the agony of it. But what that did to the audience, I got a very strong sense that there were times it was quite funny for them and times it was slightly traumatizing and that they went through quite an experience that it was more to do with me resisting acting. I was learning an awful lot that way, going, don't act through this, just keep that expression and don't try and play anything other than let whatever's coming up be there, you know? So I was learning an awful lot that way, you know? So yeah, that was quite a kind of a magical time. Um, and I think, I think we got the award the night before my first class in Trinity. So it was helpful for the actors to be arriving and going, did you, did you win some acting award? And I was going, yeah, 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 well, look, let's get on with the work, shall we? You know? <laughs> so I was going like, that kind of helps, I think, them believe that you, you, you might be you know, able to tell them a thing, you know? Which again, by the way, it's constantly changing for me. I never, you know, anytime you think you've a hold of it, it slips away, it slips away. So it's only pockets of moments. You know? Okay, so that's recognition for you in what was quite a physical role. As you say, it's the night before you move into Trinity to become... Uh, the, you know, movement teacher yeah, there, yeah. and there's kind of been an evolution for you where you've kind of become the go-to guy for physical theatre, for movement director, whatever else, up to the point where you're now still teaching movement at the Lear, the, yeah. which is kind of the evolution of what was the course at Trinity that we did. Yes, 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 yeah, it's really interesting. I should say at this point that I credit Angus with that phrase, the go-to guy. He said it in an interview, and now it's going around, <laughs> much to the chagrin of many a movement director around town, I'm sure. And I think the way I would put it is, I, I don't even know, I I'm not just saying, I don't even know what a movement director is still. I'd be an actor who's brought into these rooms to do to be told this needs to happen. The most, the 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 strongest example of it recently, I think, is was with Second Ages Macbeth that David Horne directed, whereby I got a chance there to really go somewhere with that cast who were really willing to go, and we had a, a whole physical language alongside the text that I was really thrilled that that we were able to get time to work on, and specifically there, there was a battle scene at the end, and you know some fight scenes then later on where there was no weaponry. You know, it was very much, very purposefully uh, a kind of an imaginative experience for the audience where we hit them with images and moments and suggestions. And I think I was saying this to people like, for anyone who didn't like it, I remember thinking, you know, not even facetiously, I was thinking, if you have trouble exercising your imagination, you're not going to like this at all. But if you go to be delighted and thrilled by something, then you'll have the crack, you know, and so on. But um, I think there are fantastic movement directors out there who, you know, know what they're at. And I find, I think what, if, I've, if I've an area that's, that's helpful, it's that I'm an actor. Therefore, I kind of know the suffering the actors are going through. So, I mean, even the first day of Macbeth, uh, rather than turning up in the old spandex and doing some stretches and saying, okay, folks, let's do this, you know, I didn't bring any gear. I sat with the actors for the table read and I, we started that way going, I'm, I'm wrecked from sitting for the morning. I've just had my lunch. My stomach is full. Let's start from there. And slowly we'll build it, uh, you know, because I think it's quite terrifying. I think you can be quite vulnerable as an actor in those scenarios where you're being asked to go down this road. And my, my sure. mantra in rehearsal rooms, depending on who I'm with, is it's whatever you can do to the nth degree and we'll make use of it, as opposed to you must now transform and become something else. But then you've got actors who want to go down that road, so you facilitate that as well. Um, but all of it, again, it's very selfish of me because it makes me a better actor. I learn about acting from it, you know? Do you know what you are? are in, in, in your head, no, I mean, have you a label for yourself? Are you oh, primarily an actor? Are you an actor who is also a movement director? Because, I mean, for me, I look at you as mm. all of the above. 
an award-winning actor in your own right, an award-winning director in your own right, you know, the go-to guy, as I keep, <laughs> as I insist on referring to you, you yeah. know, for, for movement, whatever else. There's also that line of, you know, of, of teaching as well that you have. Do you yeah. fit comfortably in each of those modes? Is it whatever pays the bills week to yeah, week? Yeah, buddy, it's a very good question. And it's, I think I feel very, very privileged to get to walk in these rooms I get to walk in and the hats I get to wear. And I had some interesting chats with actors over the years who, you know, from an Irish standpoint, say, you know, folk don't like you to be wearing too many hats. They like to know what you are and do that. And as a result, um, I think it, it, there's a degree to which I could be pigeonholed as that physical guy or stuff like that, which is fascinating to me because I go, really? You know, for <laughs> me, I go, oh, but I'm an actor, you know. And I think, I think it was Cathy Belton said in, in one of the podcasts about we're storytellers. We're storytellers. And I think whatever way I can facilitate the telling of that story, that's where I'm happiest. But I think acting is first, always. Yeah. Because that's where the, the juice is. That's where the flow is. And, and I think I went through a period there where, there was a period where, I think from 2008 through to 2011, I stopped teaching altogether. Just stopped. I went, I, I have to stop because I got, I hit, I hit a point where I was sick of the sound of my own voice in a room saying the same thing. And I was going... I don't know if I believe that anymore. I need to stop. So I made a pact with myself to get on stage as much as I could in 2008 to try it all out. And I think it puts an onus on you. If you know that people you taught are coming to watch you in a play, you'd better be doing the things you said in class that you would utilize and do. But I'm amazed what I discard along the way. I'm amazed at the stuff that was gospel to me 10 years ago that now isn't useful for me anymore. And I think that's the evolution of the actor. I think everyone has to go through that and the stuff that I wouldn't go near now, but someone else would. And I think they should do that, you know. And I think this is the key thing. Whatever gets you there, whatever you need to do, that's what you need to do. And for me, the path I find easiest is physical. But I love the challenge of not having that as an as a option. If I'm doing a play where I'm inside a jar up to my neck, I love that going, right, well, and the notion is inside that jar, what are you doing? But uh, that fascinates me still. I'm still uh, looking forward to those challenges, you know. Will you tell me the story about when you were doing Blanche oh, with Eddie Conroy yeah. and how you were your own one-man Rocky? Oh, no, Rocky God. Rambo. Rambo, still. oh God, this story, buddy. Wait, like, oh my goodness. Um, right, I'll tell it as quickly as I can, God help us. We did this show, Blanche, with Carpet Theatre that Kieran Taylor had directed and that myself, Amy, Jamie Carswell, Jack Hawley and Kim Porcelli had we all performed this together and it was, it's the sh- we referred to this show that just wouldn't die it kept touring and touring, touring. <laughs> what happened was it was a Buffon show so we're strapped into these um, excruciatingly painful Buffon costumes made astonishingly well by Miriam Duffy because she really did her job they were amazing but you couldn't breathe in them and you, crazy makeup blackened teeth and my character as such in the Blanche was really the C character. If you had in terms of status A, B, and C, I was very much C, who basically got his head kicked in for the duration of the show and was thrown around and flailed around and stuff. And what was happening was it was our first show. It was the, very, it was the opening night of it out in Blanchardstown. We'd rehearsed it for a long time. I was double-jobbing at the time, and so I was really exhausted. I was just in that crazy place where I just had enough energy to do the show. And I was doing a scene with Amy set in TK Maxx and I had a clothes rack and was bringing that on. I spun it round, a little flurry, got my finger caught in it and broke my finger, my baby finger and bent over to one side. So it was in an L shape. The pain was exquisite. I went to that dark place, or I should say that bright place, white light, ooh, sounds in my ears. And there was eight hangers on the rack and I had the count of those eight, eight hangers, Amy flicking through them to decide what to do. I remember thinking three things. One was... I just stopped the play. I go, sorry, folks, I broke my finger. Uh, oh, the other was go in Buffon character, go look for a doctor to do something. And the third, the unthinkable, I'll just put it back in myself. So I think my memory of this is that I disappeared for a while and my inner Rambo came out, grabbed a hold of my finger, just put it back in. Instant, I heard a big crack. Oh, Jesus. And then just carried on, carried on, didn't think about it. The pain was exquisite, just, just wonderfully sharp. I was so alive and present in that moment. And so we got on, got on. I think five minutes later, I was behind a counter in the plane, looked down at my hand and the finger was swelling up in red. I just carried on. And I remember thinking, oh, I have to receive loads of hits to that hand. I'm getting kicked in the face by Jamie in a few seconds, right to change hands. So I was changing it all up. And there was a point somewhere, somewhere in the midst, I felt I was going to pass out just from the shock. Somewhere in the midst, I could feel my legs starting to go. And I went, no, no, go, 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 just go. And in a way, the ferocity of the show helped me because it was so intense. It was so full on, full on. I just kept going. And um, that, that was a crazy point. That was a really like my, my show, the show must go on moment, you know. And funnily enough, I was doing Christmas Carol with Live and Dread in the mornings. And I was afraid I'd lose the gig if they knew my finger was broken. So I didn't tell them. <laughs> and I was going in and I had to do this scene, the Fezziwig scene where I got my hand shook by Paul Connington. 
And I was saying to Paul, Paul, just if you wouldn't mind, buddy, just very gently, gingerly, like just, just shake that hand. And God love him in the throes of his moment every time he grabbed my hand and crushed it. And the pain, the pain. But it's all part of the crack, Angus. It's all part <laughs> of the crack of being an actor, you know. You've mentioned Living Dread. Yeah. So I want to mention the incredible Aaron Monaghan. Oh, God. Um, who we have both had the misfortune yeah, of having a long relationship yeah, yeah, yeah. with. Um, talk to me about you guys working together and about being you know the friendship you guys have as well ah it's ludicrous yeah it's ludicrous yeah I think you know um, he's just my, my best friend in, in the world and in the business and uh, you know he's a phenomenal actress there's no need to say anything else about you know in terms of that you know um, I mean we tease each other an awful lot there's that lovely stuff where I'll see a show and be going like buddy that was amazing you know, I'm going to watch everything you did and just do the opposite and I should be fine you know <laughs> all that usual stuff but I think I think he wouldn't mind me mentioning this I think you know we we, we kind of got on around that time when I was in with you and we were doing Ubu, but, you know, I felt I got on with the whole class. It was a great experience. But uh, both of our poor, poor old dads passed away around the same time, and somewhere in that loss, there was just a connection that, that kind of sustained. And I think beyond everything else, that's always kind of there, you know. But it just developed into a hugely respectful relationship for the work and for our kind of rigor and diligence with it and our belief in it and our passion for it. And, um, and then out of that comes just a ludicrous friendship as well. You know, like it's kind of ludicrous. It's kind of, I, I just feel so grateful to have it. I just feel so lucky. I went, wow, it's so, such a privilege to have. I mean, you know yourself, having friendships inside and outside of the business are so important and, and all that. And with him, I just feel like regardless of drama and theatre, we just would have been really good mates, you know. But we're really good for each other in the way of, we get to bounce off each other in, in the midst of rehearsals to kind of help each other make sense of the work and we're really good for I, I really need people in my life who'll come and see the show go well done brilliant brilliant but sit down with them two weeks later and go right thank you for coming this worked what didn't work what, what do I need to be thinking about what habits what did I do that I that you know took from and I have a couple of people who do that for me you know Amy Conway will do that for me she did it for me after show and it's really important and Aaron will do that and I think that that's really helpful for us but not note to anyone not the night of the show you know you need to kind of survive that I have a few folk who come in and go yeah it really wasn't my cup of tea and it takes all your willpower not to choke them and go I'm just wait till tomorrow at least yeah. you know but, uh, but no you know and I really he's doing the, the, the Druids the Murphy at the moment I'm really excited about what that's going to be like fantastic cast and he's going to be doing that he'll probably get some class of a limp in there somewhere and if he can all to the good, you know, because he does them so well. Yes, he has cor he's cornered the market in, in oh, limping. He's possibly. practicing one back at the apartment. I'm watching him do it. He's just kind of, you know, limping up and down the hallway, arching his body. He's phenomenal, you know. I, I hope this isn't telling tales out of school, mm. but I, I'm a, a massive Aussie Rules fan. <laughs> Nick Revolt is the captain of the <laughs> St. Kilda Saints, and he's my hero. Okay. But he's renowned for the fact that his warm-ups often last longer than the actual game will and they right. play ridiculously long matches over there yeah. and there is a thing that you and Aaron have in common which is to my mind just a ridiculous work ethic uh, yeah. and, and a rigour to the approach and I hope you're comfortable enough with me going here because I yeah, know yeah, from working it. with you both Aaron's warm-ups will often be longer than the show itself which yeah. to any right-minded actor goes what are you nuts <laughs> yeah. but then you see it becomes a thing of the harder he works the luckier, luckier he gets yeah. and I know it's a similar thing with you and the kind of physical discipline you have for mm. daily routines is that something you want to talk about? Uh, I don't mind chatting about it a bit I know because I know uh, warm-ups are a bone of contention for people in some respects because depending on what the warm-up is um, you know, I think there was an actor, I think it was John Olhan said very warmly, you know, just going, you know, you don't run a marathon before doing a marathon. You know, the notion of getting the body ready as opposed to burning it out before you go on. And I think it really depends on the role and depends on what does that actor need to do. And I know for me, funnily enough, the, the demands of certain parts that I've, I get to do have a huge physical component in them and a vocal component. And there's all that, that question of safety and all those things. And I think for me, what I tended to do for years was... Um, if there was a part I was doing that I felt I could do, I would purposefully set really ridiculous challenges for myself with it so that it would prepare me for the impossible part that might be coming. So that when something like Johnny Patterson came along with Barabbas, I was ready. I was going, uh, okay, now not to say, oh, I have this remotely going, I've been preparing for this without knowing it for a few years and stuff. So I don't mind talking about it whereby I need to, for me, I need to do a certain amount physically and vocally 
to get to that place on stage where you're completely present and responsive and, and there's a chance for something to happen with your fellow actors, with the audience, for something to kind of take. Now I say I need to. It'd be interesting to try it without and see. But something about, I don't want there to be a single thought about me during the show, if that makes sense. It has to all be focused outward so that you're susceptible and open. And it's just how I've kind of evolved. I go, yeah, that's what I need to do. Someone else may not need to do that. And uh, so it's, it's, and I think it, it got, I think, I don't want to use the word excessive, but I know my body inside out. And I think it, it's, it's the instrument through which we do our job. And it's really important that it's at my disposal so that my thoughts, my physical actions are completely connected. I'm doing it before I even realize I've done it so that I'm not thinking. It's funny, I think of, you know, the certain shows where the warm-up is the vigor and the, and the pr- preparation that you can come on completely at ease and at peace. And I'm in awe of, there's a generation of actors out there who I know they turn up just before and go on and they're amazing. And I, I, talk, I think about that a lot. I go, how are they able to do that? And I go, is it just because after a certain point, everything's at your fingertips? And I feel like I'm getting to a point now where certain things feel like they're at my fingertips. I don't have to kind of do as much as I used to but I still do because I feel like, well, while you can, why not? And what if that makes all the difference, you know? But for you, it is, it's legit. It's whether the show is on or whether there's no show on. It's yeah. a daily practice. And yeah. is it the guts of a full hour more? It's an hour and a half now, but there's, there's more. I'll tell you what, without going, I suppose it's this. Um, funny enough, the demands of what's being asked of you kind of turns you into that. So for you doing fight night, yeah. you know there's that period where you go, I have to get the skipping rope out, I have to go and start, like weeks and weeks in advance. And the best I can put it is, it's all preparation. Yeah. It's all preparation. And it's, it's all about, now comes the moment where you have to put it into practice and then you forget it. Yeah. You know, and so on. So, so I, it's, now for me, it's an extensive, it's, it's an amalgamation of everything I would have learned with Andy, with Luce Cannon, with everyone, just to keep those things present. And I think, if you've been given the responsibility of standing in a room, either as a movement director and you're going to be working with people physically, either as a teacher of young actors that I feel like, for as much as is it possible, you should be able to do the things you're asking them to do. So there's no denying it. They can't deny it, you know, and say, well, you can't do that. And I go, well, this is it. You know, I remember yeah. seeing that in Loose Cannon a lot. These actors were phenomenal. Everyone had their area of expertise. And you were going, he, he's amazing. She's amazing. I, I have to be able to try and do that, you know. To, to what end, you know, and the idea is, uh, uh, seeing Raoul in the Abbey last year, my God, you know, it was lovely to read some of his stuff when he talked about how he has to kind of make friends with each part of his body the day before the thing and going, thank you, feet, for taking me through this, ankles, all that stuff. And I, as I said, all of it is just to have a strong relationship with my physical side so that it does open up the expressive side, the artistic side, the spiritual side, all that stuff, which needs to be worked as well. To have all those tools at your disposal to tell the story. Yes, for as long as I'm physically able to, I want to be able to do that before the tools become something else, you know. But I look at people like John Cavanagh and I'm totally inspired. I look at John and I go, he's still giving it the lash physically. I love it, you know, so all all to the good, you know, because we're in it for the long haul. You and I, I believe. I don't think we're going anywhere anytime soon, you know. It's not going to get rid of me that easy. No. (laughs) Right, you've mentioned it, so we have to bring it up. With me avoiding as much talk about myself (laughs) as possible. What is your recollection of when you were first approached to come on board for the little show that could fight night? Oh, fantastic. Good. We chat about this for a bit. Lovely. To your eternal, you know, credit, you, you, you popped over to my house... And you quietly told me you'd been doing the show in the bag and that the astonishing and wonderful Raymond Keane was going to be your mentor and that you wouldn't mind having me in the room just as an eye to it, you know, an eye to kind of keep an eye on the, with this, this notion. And I love, I don't mind saying this, you know, I hate being afraid. It's one. Of the, it's from childhood. Anything that scares me, I lean into and go deal with. As soon as it comes up, I go, don't like being afraid of this, go deal with it. And, and anything theatrically that I'm terrified of, that I go, I don't think I know how to do this. I leap into it. And I was just terrified that you'd ask me, genuinely. I don't mind saying that to you. I was going, oh God, um, will I be able to be in any way helpful to you here with this and, and, and so on. So that made me really excited by it because I didn't know how to do it. You know, in, in the wake of Fight Night success, there's been some very nice directing offers and the stuff that I go, I think I know how to do that. So I tend to say no. Isn't that gas? You know, wow. whereas years ago you were like, oh brilliant, this work. But I go, I, I don't think I'm the right director for you, you know, and so on. So with this, um, what I loved was your absolute passion and determination that it would be physical that you would take yourself somewhere that I hadn't seen you go since college in terms of a physical journey seeing you take those emotional journeys with sure us. but I was going this Angus is, is fired up there was a fire in you that I went oh, this is really exciting and I get to be part of it and I think um f- for my delight I think what was very very good of you and very gracious of you was I kind of said to you early on 
because we're friends, I'm going to take advantage of that in the rehearsal room. And that anything, the way I would put it is that I think, you know, we have masks, you know, I'm aware, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm not unaware of a kind of a nice guy tag that I have in, in theatre. And I'm aware that I love about going to a rehearsal room that can go. You can let that go. You go on stage, you go, as I was saying, that wrestle for my soul between my parents. The dark aspects, my father, all that stuff is very present in me still. So I love going into a room and going, okay, let's let that out now. The nice guy can go. Because I'm a big fan of, I think it's, it's important to have a positive atmosphere in rehearsals not that it doesn't mean arguments can't happen but that it's about the work and about our passion to get it up and get it on you know in as positive an atmosphere as possible what I loved was that anything I saw what would be kind of an Angusism of that warmth I didn't allow you to do I was going you're not allowed that has to go and what was there it's terrifying because the mask comes down which doesn't mean Dan Coyle Jr. wasn't warm or had all those aspects so it was a delightful experience and I think Gavin wrote a cracking script you know, Raymond's mentoring was really top class. He had some fantastic, you know, uh, ideas and notes and an overview of, of the idea. And then us in a room for two weeks, two weeks of half day, because you were working on Aoife Spillane's on the show yeah. as well, you know, and I just had a baby, you know, you were right in the thick of it, you know, and, uh, and we really diligently went for it. And it was just a very magical time. Not to mention our texts with Colin Marr, which were always a delight. Wow, wonderful guy. <laughs> yes. well, it's, I mean, as I have maintained to this date, it, for me, that was a three-way process, that there yeah. were three equal partners in the creation of that show. There was yeah. me for the original idea and the shape that I ultimately brought to it, yeah. the incredible script from Gavin Costick. And, and I do see as, as an equal third the, your direction and specifically your physical approach to telling that story because... Again, I don't want to talk to him. I know, me, of course. But of course, yeah. there's that thing of there are many scenes within that show where I'm playing five or six characters yeah. all at the same time, all having a conversation with themselves. Yeah. <laughs> and if it's only you on stage, how do you go about physically creating a believable uh, scenario for that? Or also just a yeah. way that an audience can read it clearly, that they know yes. which character is which and to have them that defined. Yes. And the shape that you brought to it, I think, was absolutely fundamental to that. Because like you say, you know, you didn't know how to tackle it. I knew I didn't know how to tackle it. Yes. I knew that you were the man to do it. Yeah, yeah. Which is why I, I had to have you on board. You were my first and only choice for well, that gig. Very nice of you to say that. And I feel very, very privileged to get to be there for that, you know. And I, I, as I said, I think for us, once we get into the script, it starts telling us what to do. Once you start into it, it starts becoming clear. And I love, I mean, I say this to you, you know, um, here's the funny thing. For all the talk of physical, for all that stuff, it's the tiny, intimate moments of real truth, however they appear in Fight Night, in Johnny Patterson, in other shows I've seen and been involved with. They're the things we're aspiring towards. And I think, if you think about it, from when I think of Fight Night, I think of that beautiful scene in the micro. You on a stool, sitting, talking to your girlfriend. And you are the girlfriend in the scene as well. Yeah. And we have to go through the fires of all that physical stuff to generate the energy, to generate the world, to earn that moment. And that's, I think, part of what our job is. You go, how do we bring ourselves? I think Joe Mangan was talking about that, about how do we bring our audience to that, oh, place, oh my God. And that sitting forward in the seat place without realizing. And I think it's only after the scene is over, you go, oh God, I've been leaning forward for the last while. And that's what I'm most fascinated in still. And, and, and I must say, you know, there's a personal aspiration still towards a pure artistic moment like that. A moment like that where everything's working, everything's happening. And I, I've had it very few times where, where I could say it all was there and it may have happened for someone in the audience or it may have happened for someone on stage you know those nights you think you're brilliant or the nights you're awful the nights you thought you had a terrible night was the best night ever but sometimes that alchemy happens you know um, I talk a lot about I drive people mad there's this wonderful moment in the beaded video of Michael Jackson when he walks out of a door he just walks out of a door dancing and clicking his fingers and it's one of my favourite things in the world it's just a beautiful moment of his expression physically and vocally um, Bruce Lee has one in Fist of Fury. These are things now relating to film stuff as opposed to theatre stuff. But, uh, I've, you know, um, certain shows have allowed that to happen and I've seen it happen in rehearsal rooms I've been in and I, I still aspire towards that. Absolutely going. And I think if we can get there, we know why we're here in the first place. And hopefully our audience do too. And I think if you find this with Fight Night usually, which I love is people's responses being about their own lives. That's the key thing. That folk, oh God, my father was just like that. Oh, my mother is exactly this, my this, my that. And then it feels like we're on to something. And I love those post-show chats then with people. And, you know, it, it affects us then, you know. Yeah, I remember the post-show we did in Carlo, which oh, I think yeah. may have been <laughs> 10 years to the day since I went to see The Princess That's Bride right. in Carlo. That's that right. the post-show we did then there was longer than the show itself. I know, that was amazing. ludicrous. Well, you see, in fairness, half my family were there, friends, and everyone was <laughs> they being just very nice. To chat to you. Yeah, well, no, it was lovely. Um, it was you've nice. mentioned 
Raymond Keane oh. and Johnny Patterson a couple of times. Yeah. We can't not mention another award-winning role ah, for you, despite the fact of winning awards earlier as an actor, winning awards as director on Fight Night, winning awards now on, uh, on Johnny Patterson as well. Yeah. What was that experience like? Oh, God. I mean, it's funny. Like, you know, the natural and the Irish thing in relation to awards and stuff is go, ah, God, ah, Jesus, ah, this. But in theatre terms... It's so true. It's all a collaboration. It's and, and Johnny Patterson was one of the most wonderful collaborations I've ever experienced. You know, and Raymond at the helm. You know, giving life and poetry to this fantastic script by John Nee, a wonderful performance by John, and then Roger Gregg providing you know an hourly accompaniment to that, and, and I got to paint the pictures. You know, and I think you were doing serious money at the time. I we was. Were doing that project, so we weren't. We didn't get. We were chatting away in the dressing rooms and stuff, which was great crack. I loved that. Even the fact that there was a cast. We would we'd be passing each other by going break a leg tonight, break a leg. I love that backstage world of it, you know. Um, but that experience was was divine because uh, it was one of those if you've got lemons make lemonade parts where Raymond, to his credit, called me up out of the blue, going, "I'd like you to consider doing this." And I was someone who I thought I was off Raymond's radar. I'd wanted to work with Brabus since I saw White Headed Boy in 1999. Came out of school, came out of college, saw it, and thought, "You can do that." You can be on stage with nothing, just three actors, and you can do all of that. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, four, including Louis Lovett, of course, who appeared later on, you know. But um, I uh, had an, uh, basically the character wasn't on the page doing anything as such. It was just, just a description of him and suggestions for what he might do. And Raymond just crafted this world for him to exist in. And we, just ha- we were just, for whatever reason during that period, completely in sync throughout. And I think I was having a crazy time while we were rehearsing because we were doing Blanche in the Fringe at the same time. We were also doing Sarah Jane Scaife's um, interpretation of Beckett's Acre That Words too at the same time. So I was existing in a place that, that for those few months, just pure theatre. All my experiences were completely on a rehearsal room or in relation to an audience. So um, on that show, I learned so much about stillness and about preparing like crazy to do as little as possible and to keep away from all your good intentions acting-wise and to... Uh, you know, there's so many moments in that show stand out for me, but there are culmination moments. You know, there's things where I go, this moment, I'm, I'm, I'm letting this character know his child has died with the arrival of a, a tiny child's shoe on my hand. His response to that creates the moment of the shoe, which, you know, Rory Musgrave got, you know, the, the costume I'm in, the makeup, the lights, the, the moment, every, you know, all those collaborative things. And I get the credit for that moment. You know, you go, oh, that moment, and you go, but that was all of that, if that makes sense. Um, so it was a beautiful way to work and uh, my fear only after it was that I said am I going to get cast in anything that has text after this <laughs> you know and so on but uh, I, I can't say enough about Raymond about Barabbas about that experience he just was in a place where he looked after us and, and took us on a fantastic you know experience well so much so that you're going to go and do it all again with Raymond not uh, yes. with Tony Patterson but with the, the Beckett show again yeah we're off to New York in June I like New York in June how about you um, I'm really looking forward to that this is Sarah Jane Scaife directed it for The Fringe I think nearly three years ago now and then we had a fantastic experience with that uh, now I have to be very careful fantastic experience profoundly moving experience and we get into this whole thing even as a boy I wrestled with this am I having more crack than the audience are and therefore how self-serving is what we do versus how much is it for an audience you know that's a question that I struggle with a lot particularly I think as a director you can do something about that as a movement director as an actor I'm going ah you know and in this experience um, very few people have seen it because you can only allow a certain amount of audience members in at a time to see it not unlike a Louise Lowe experience you know and um, with this, we, we had a relationship with the homeless community in Dublin, and where we were rehearsing it, they would come and watch it and give us notes. We got notes on it from who'd go, no, we wouldn't do it that way, he'd do this. And I, I, I just, I don't want to sound kind of holier than thou, and I don't want to sound like, you know, we really, we really got into what it was like to be homeless, because I knew whenever we finished that show, I was hopping on the bike and heading home to my bed. And what was interesting was, particularly during the theatre festival, Lachlan Deegan, to his eternal you know, um, credit, took us into the festival. So we were doing that in the alleyway at the Gaiety while Druid were doing Silver Tassie next wow. door to us, which was interesting. Uh, was that myself and Raymond are in these two sleeping bags. We do all Beckett's text to the letter, all the actions. There's nothing that's not in his text, but put it outside, put dirty us up, put in those actions, and it becomes about homelessness and drug addiction, you know, with Sarah Jane Scaife's very crystal clear eye on it. And um, what was interesting was, you know, we'd, we'd have our theatre practitioners and theatre makers and audience come and see it, 
be taken somewhere by it and then we were leaving that alley and stepping over to other sleeping bags of actual people when we'd be leaving so I have very uh, I don't want to say mixed feelings because it suggests good and bad but I have a very uh, still unprocessed feelings about that experience as a show whenever we've done it and we took it to London last year and had a similar experience in that respect and I'm fascinated to see what happens in New York with it I'm dying to see you know and I'm looking forward to working with Raymond again and working with, with Sarah Jane. And Raymond played the part that I'm playing with Sarah Jane in the Beckett in the 90s. And he's evolved to that part now of the A character and the B character. So I'm looking forward to playing the A character in 20 years' time, you know. Um, but, but I'm still profoundly moved by the experience and I'm still looking forward to seeing what it can, what it can bring out. And my, my, I'm hoping to, you know, with Sarah Jane, what's brilliant about her as a director is she doesn't let you off the hook ever. Every single beat is asked for, is explored, is looked at, is done, and that's a brilliant way to work. I think Judith was talking about the text, Annabelle and the text, and Sarah Jane is that way physically, as well as text. So you get both together, and uh, it's on one level, it's constraining in the way that you have to do that, and then it frees you to play that score, you know? So it's, I'm really excited by it, you know? It's brilliant. I'm delighted. I, I'm just delighted to hang out with you again as well. That was an amazing <laughs> chat. Um, yeah. I wish you the very best of luck with the with the trip to New York. If oh, people want much. to stay in touch with you or offer you work, is there a place to get you? Facebook, Twitter, oh, anything else? I'm always in one of the Charlies having food there if anyone <laughs> wants to come. It's just brilliant. I know, I know I'm around. and You can find me, I'm sure, like that. And I mean, what I'd say to anyone, you know, is I'm still pursuing that sublime theatrical moment in whatever way it is to serve that. So you know, you can always give me a buzz and I'll always meet you for the cup of tea and chat about whether we can work together or not. You know, I'm always, always kind of hoping to be able to say yes to people, you know, that way and so on. So it's lovely to be at that stage where it's still, there's still so much to learn, still so much to do, you know, and, um, and you know, wishing Rise all the best for their future endeavours. You know, this has been great crack. Um, I've really enjoyed the podcast, so I'm looking forward to seeing who you have on next, you know. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm, well, you're up next, which is, so you know. Oh, yeah, that's me. All right. Yeah, okay, everybody. <laughs> no, it's great, Burroughs. Thank you so much for having the chat. Oh, really thanks, appreciate thanks. that, man. We'll, uh, we'll leave it there. All right. So there you have it, Brian Burroughs. What a hero. Um, just a brilliant, brilliant interview, I think. So refreshingly honest and frank and, uh, and a real insight into a guy who takes the business so seriously. I mean... That warm-up routine that we spoke about is something that he does six days a week, whether he's in the middle of a production or whether he's waiting for the next gig to come up. There's that level of dedication that he has applied to, or the rest of us are falling out of bed, hungover after a night bitching and moaning in the pub after a show the night before. He's there constantly working, constantly ready. And it is that thing. The harder he works, the luckier he gets. I He's such an inspiration to me. I have so much time for the guy and just a wonderful, wonderful guy to be around. I was really delighted to be able to sit down and, and do this chat with him. It was one that I was wary of doing too early on in this series of interviews because I didn't want it to just be a big flight night love-in. Um, but he's a guy who uh, who I really felt would have an interesting take on things and, and a voice that you guys really would like to hear. So there you have it, Brian Burroughs. I love him to bits. Look, that brings us to our weekly roundup of what's going on around the country. The all-conquering Alice in Funderland is continuing at the Abbey Theatre um, at Project Arts Centre. The Turnaround Festival is happening, which is five different shows from the Fringe Festival over the last couple of years um, that they've decided to bring back for this kind of mini festival. And there's some great ticket deals there. If you buy tickets to all five shows or three or a couple, um, best place to get information on those ticket deals and all those individual shows is at projectartscenter.ie at the Viking Theatre at the Sheds they have Tuesday with Mori is still going on there the Gate Theatre has my cousin Rachel about to kick off they're previewing uh, from this week Um, the new theatre has men are from Stony Batter women are from Fibsborough from Malin Productions and the title alone there is going to make me want to get in and see that Um, the new theatre is just such a wonderful space as you know it's where we played Fight Night during the theatre festival Uh, such a great place to see uh, a lovely intimate show in a lovely intimate venue that's one you should definitely go and check out um at smock alley they have a million different shows going on they have monster clock for those added dates this week if you can beg borrow or steal a ticket i think that's the only way you're going to get in there um pan pan's production of a dollhouse is now open there i had the uh, honor of being at their opening night the other evening uh wonderfully inventive and theatrical production as i guess is typical from Pan Pan at this stage, but some wonderful, wonderful performances in there as well. Judith Rod 
Scotty just being as stunning as ever. Charlie Bonner, brilliant. Um, the wonderful Pauline Hutton back on an Irish stage makes me very happy indeed. So great to see her there. It's uh, That's certainly well worth checking out. And also at Smock Alley, um, True West from Ramblin' Man is continuing there. Um, Bewley's Cafe Theatre have that production of Joist by Don Kelly uh, and their lunchtime slot. And also the picture of Dorian Gray is continuing in their evening dinner theatre slot. Uh, Axis Ballymun has Dermot Bulger's new play Tea Chests and Dreams uh, that's only just opened and Focus Theatre has Before Vanishing those four short uh, Beckett plays including Come and Go in an Irish language version as far as I know um, as we move around the country up to Belfast at the Lyric Theatre White Star of the North which Des Kennedy has directed is just finishing up uh, and Limerick Savoy Hotel is kicking off a lunchtime theatre venue which is a really welcome development for that city uh, and I can vouch myself for the hotel itself because it's absolutely fab. It's a proper, real deal, five-star hotel. It's where we stayed during the fight night tour when we played Limerick. Uh, not that we stayed in many five-star hotels on that tour, it has to be said. But we managed to get a decent deal there. Um, and also around the country at the moment, um, Fishamble are touring two separate productions. They have um, Sonia Kelly's show in a bag show, The Wheelchair on My Face. Um, and Pat Kinnevin's show is still on the road with them before it's going into the National Theatre at the Abbey soon um, they're playing a rake of different dates uh, all over the country uh, so the best thing to do there is to ju- just to check out Fishamble's website which is fishamble.com that'll give you all the info on those two separate tours and all the different venues around the country that they're hitting so look that's us that is episode 23 in the books we will be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast for Angus Og McAnally I'm Angus O'Mcanally. We'll see you next week. Bye.